I am a London Mayor and welcome to another episode of On the Issues. My guest today is Tim Williams, a consultant who recently worked for six years in the Office of the Middle East Quartet Representative in Jerusalem. So, <laughs> well, thank, thank you again for, for taking the time. I think uh, the reason I do this, I'm doing this because it is exactly what I've been trying to describe to you today, yeah, uh, just a few minutes ago. It is okay for us to talk and sit mm -hmm. down and exchange of views, mm -hmm. but we want other people to hear this. Mm -hmm. And so the purpose is not for me and you know, enjoy the conversation. We do. <laughs> I yes, do. <laughs> yeah. But it makes a lot more sense if this is disseminated and thousands and tens of thousands of people can hear and we can see them downloading and hearing mm -hmm. this kind of discussion. That's why I think uh, one of the things I suggested in this conference that we had in the University of Melanoma was the need for having that, this kind of discussion mm. to be live streamed. So you get four scholars, religious mm -hmm. scholars, mm -hmm. Christian, mm -hmm. Jewish, a Palestinian, and perhaps a couple of, two of each, say. And they will sit and discuss the future of Jerusalem. They don't have to agree or disagree, just discuss options. And have it streamed live to universities, high schools, public, as long as you advertise it in advance. Mm -hmm. And you see how many people can tune in mm -hmm. and just listen to the discussion and they become familiar with the possibilities and why perhaps, why that Jerusalem will have to be a capital of two state for mm -hmm. peace to materialize. Mm -hmm. So this is the kind of thing I've been, I've been trying to promote and this is just a small part of that much larger program. Yeah. So that's why I think uh, what I'd like to talk with you today is about what we've just been talking about before, that is, what are the real impediments? I mean, hmm. presumably there's a majority. We are constantly, polls are taken, majority of Palestinian and Israelis say we want peace based on a two-state solution. Hmm. So, I mean, this is the kind of poll I've been listening and hearing. And do you, do, do you have the same yeah. information? I, th I think it's very interesting because the polls are often very paradoxical. They do get very relatively high percentages of people saying, we want peace, we want a two-state solution, but then I don't want to live next door to an Arab or Basically a Jew. Basically on their own terms. Yeah, they have very, and, and sometimes yeah. the terms are very paradoxical. That is exactly right. So that's, uh, however... I think there is also a realization, uh, I don't know if you agree with me, that there is significant constituency, if not a majority, albeit perhaps mm -hmm. not high majority, but say 50, maybe, maybe 55 to 60 percent, who still know they need to make significant concessions to reach an mm -hmm. agreement. It's going to be painful. It entails concern about for the future. Uh, will it work? Will it not work? Mm -hmm. And so this is something that's been lingering in the mind of most Israelis. So there is what we talked about before, the psychological aspect of it. That is, can you in fact sit down today and begin to negotiate real issues, like the future of the Palestinian refugees, mm -hmm. what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So from my perspective, there's got to be a need mm -hmm. for different kind of process to precede a direct face-to-face -face negotiation. What's your take on that? Okay. Um, um, first of all, I think that the interesting part of those polls is the 45% who don't agree, or whatever the figure may be, because yeah. they're the people who I think are very 
you know, if you look at the psychological consequences of protracted conflict, which is what we have here, as similarly in Ireland, similarly in Colombo and other places, uh, you get uh, a, a focus on a zero-sum game. Yeah. If you gain, I must lose. And uh, in the work I had do, I did with the Office of the Quartet Representative, very often uh, the Israeli military would say, well, if we give the Palestinians that, what do we get? Literally, what do we get? Yeah, it's, they, they, it's they very were insisting easy. constantly on yeah. the quid pro quo, yeah. because exactly that, my loss is your gain, yep. and my gain is going to be your loss, yeah. and therefore there's very little room left for compromises. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever met Iyad Siraj, the psychiatrist from Gaza. Uh, I haven't. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the late Iyad Siraj uh, put it like this. He said, um, if you suffer, I win. Yeah, and I think that was <laughs> yeah. a, a very sad summary of the reality. Yes. But I think with a protracted conflict, one thing you get is this zero-sum game. But you also get a moral, what psychologists call moral exclusion, that you you yeah. you, you have to treat the the other as an other, as someone who, and the narrative and the propaganda feeds into this that the other is bad and all of those other things. And then what you get is moral exclusion. And so I can I can believe that I'm a moral person because I treat my neighbor very my next door neighbor very well, but I can behave incredibly badly to the other because they're outside my moral orbit. They don't count. Yeah, but this is, yeah, many people I think you do, you do exactly what they are saying, moral exclusion, but they take the concept of moral mm. and twist it mm. because then I mean I believe there is mm. a certain principle when it comes to morality. That mm. morality is basically discerning as objectively as possible, what's right, what's wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to act upon that. Mm-hmm. When you do moral exclusion, you're no longer adhering to the principle of what is actually moral in terms of right and wrong and twisting it to suit your needs. Yeah. It's not so much that I change my morals, I change my moral scope. This person is just beyond the horizon morally. What, what I do to them is not judged in the same way as what I do to my next door neighbor. Exactly what I'm saying is we take the liberty of making our morals, commitment to what is moral and what is right, Mm. and we make it flexible to suit our particular needs. That's that's what the Israelis and the Palestinians have been doing all along, Mm. because both claim that they have the the right Right on their side. And then they they are the moral people, because Mm. they've they've been used and abused. They've Mm. been mistreated. So that adds another layer, of course, to the, mm. to the mm. tractability of the, of the conflict itself. Yeah. But what are the elements, like we were talking before? Suppose, you know, Netanyahu is calling on Abbas, the only way we can solve this problem is if we sit and negotiate face-to-face, mm. unconditionally. Mm. Of course, I don't buy that. Mm. <laughs> unconditionally is a condition. It's a condition. Mm-hmm. It's a very strong one, mm. for that matter. Where do you start? Mm. Where do you start the negotiation? Mm. But let's say even if they agree mm. to sit down and negotiate, and I think we agree that this is not going to lead to mm. any kind of mm. resolution, mm. because there are other elements that are impeding or will not allowing this kind of resumption of negotiation to succeed. Mm. What are some of these elements? You know, you've been, you've had the experience there for sure. so many years, and I'm sure you heard these type of things going mm. on. You know. What are, from your perspective, these other elements that need to be overcome? Mm. I think so, some of them are quite visible and some of them yeah. much less so. And obviously, if there's going to be a negotiation, it has to be nested in a process uh, which takes account of what's happening regionally 
and you know where does the Arab Peace Initiative fit now? And in fact, can the Arab League deliver the Arab Peace Initiative anymore, given the tensions between Egypt and Saudi and all of the other players in the region? But one of the things which is very visible is the political narrative and the political process. And I think the Israeli leadership, the Palestinian leadership, both in Ramallah and in Gaza, uh, now have a politics of conflict. The, the, the conflict is woven into integrated drives the political process, the political discussion. Exactly. And that's very visible. And they get their political status and power from the conflict. And for them to see a different way of operating politically is going to be very difficult. But for both, the, the origins of their political system is in conflict. Um, whether you go back to 1948 or 1967, wherever you take the, or, or 1993, wherever you take the starting point, it's a politics of conflict and a very visible politics. Of yeah, conflict. you're right. And as a result of this, um, uh, that is perpetuating the conflict by and, and uh, assuming that political approach, that is, it is of a vested interest. Yes, yeah, yeah. In the status quo. Indeed. That's and what and so similarly with the economic structure and systems and. The part which is visible is the fact that the Palestinian economy is in decline. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a de-developing economy and has been propped up by Western money. And the, the, the visible part is that, that, that uh, you know, huge rates of unemployment, huge rates of youth unemployment, um, serious unemployment of uh, university graduates, people getting permits to work in Israel, which is, you know, they get paid maybe but three times as much. From your experience, you know, I think they've had and still have the opportunities to change the dynamics of well, the economic dynamics, the unemployment situation. Yeah. What it is that is stopping them from focusing on, on that and begin to develop the structure of a state. Well, in terms of the economics, I think there's a paradox for the Palestinians in terms of even developing the structure of a state because... Again, if, if they go too far along developing the structure of a, the functioning structure of a state, they start to move away from the conflict. And the conflict is the narrative, the conflict is the But core. wouldn't you think that the structure of a state is needed regardless? That yes. is whether the conflict continues, continuing, sure. whenever it comes to an end, yeah. you have to end up with a, with a statehood. With a state. That's what they want. Well, so the, why not Why not begin to focus? I mean, I understand their mindset in, in that sense. That mm. What is their calculation? What it mm. is that they refuse to invest in the structure and mm. develop instead, even though the, the conflict is continuing? Mm. But from the in terms of the end game, under the, any circumstances, they need that yeah. structure. And why? what is stopping them? How would that impact, actually, mm. on the resolution itself? Well, I, I think there are, there are two constraints, and one is historical. So, same as you get throughout the Middle East. Initially, they were a, an Ottoman province of Syria, um, very poorly administered. Then they were under the British mandate, perhaps better administered, but administered by an external organization. Uh, then they were under the Jordanian or Egyptians, depending on whether you're talking about uh, the West Bank or Gaza. Um, administration is simply not a, there's not a strong psychological construct around administration of a state. Um, and you see this, you know, you, you look at uh, Libya as the classic example, colonized by the, the Ottomans and the Italians and then Ram Gaddafi. Um, you know, there's very little kind of uh, tradition 
of either civil society or civil service. That's uh, true, but, but in Libya you have a tribals. And in tribal society, it's much harder, I think, in the Palestinian situation with the Palestinians. Yeah. You have two, basically you have two major major entities there. You have, you have the groups, you, know, you have yeah. Hamas, you have the Palestinian authorities. Other splinter extremist groups really don't matter much. They yeah. haven't mattered much in recent mm. years. So, so we have we have that, but the question I've always and I ask many many Palestinians, don't you think if you focus on building a structure of a state, mm -hmm. say going back 15, 20 years, you would have sent an entirely different message mm -hmm. to the Israelis, mm -hmm. who they see now you're focusing on building a state. Mm -hmm. Take Gaza as a perfect example. Mm -hmm. What would have been the difference if Hamas after two thousand and seven? Instead of building tunnels mm. and building the uh, you know the, the infrastructure for war and for more conflict, then focusing on developing Gaza and, mm -hmm. and, and really mm -hmm. make Gaza a, a tourist destination. <laughs> mm. uh, well, I, I think part of that is it runs against the uh, it runs against the narrative, the narrative of conflict. Uh, we yes. can't go too far toward a. a in quotes, peaceful state structure, because that runs against the narrative, particularly in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. Uh, I think, this, the, as I said, the lack of a, of a tradition of civil service and organization. But also, uh, as part of the economics, the Palestinian Authority and, and the government in Gaza rely on external money, which is driven by the conflict. Um, you know, in Saudi Arabia, they pump oil, in Ramallah and Gaza, they pump the occupation. And whether the money comes from Iran to Gaza uh, or whether it comes from the US and Europe for Ramallah, it's, it's a driver for a conflict mentality um, that if we suddenly don't have a conflict, we suddenly don't have an income. And again, you could say, I'm sure you would, well, why don't you get your economy going? Because then you won't need this external money. And I think the other constraint is an interesting one is, is uh, the way the Israeli security apparatus controls the Palestinian e economy. And uh, one example quoted by the World Bank is that a Palestinian importing a container load of goods directly into the West Bank from Europe, say, it costs that business three times as much and takes three times as long as it would for an Israeli business. Mm -hmm. So that's significant. So, yeah, yeah, and it's um, been attempting to monopolize. Yeah. Well, yeah, indeed. And and the problem is that the the key performance indicators for the the Israeli guy sitting on the border or at the port or anywhere else, the only performance indicator that counts is did any Jews die today? Was it your fault? The the idea of efficiency. It, they want an effective system in terms of security, which is a reasonable thing to say. But efficiency is simply not part of the equation. And again, you know, why should we make it more efficient? What do we get? You know, you get back to this win-win game. Um, but uh, I was saying that you know the, the elements of the economy. One one is just development of the economy. One is this link between the economy and the politics, where the money. Uh, it's a rentier economy where the the, the political class in Gaza and the political class in Ramallah get their money from the conflict, but also a product of the way in which, the, the just simply the physical infrastructure way that, that goods move between Israel and the West Bank, across the Jordan River, or between Israel and Gaza, is that the opportunity is created for monopoly and, and corruption. 
uh, for both Israelis and Palestinians. And um, well, what did that talk to? I mean, we know that this is what's taking place, mm -hmm. and we also know that this is causing serious impediment to mm -hmm. serious real progress mm -hmm. on the peace front. Mm -hmm. Then they have the, the they, are, they have become wedded mm -hmm. to the narrative, mm -hmm. which was really uh, uh, you might say um, I don't want to call it just plain fabrication, mm -hmm. but it is based on certain illusions mm -hmm. to some extent, mm -hmm. and being a prisoner of your own narrative, mm -hmm. you tend to begin to create the condition on the ground to make it consistent Indeed. with your narrative. Yeah. And I think this is what the Palestinians have been doing, basically, well, and the Israelis, yes, and the Israelis, yes, consistently, mm. in order to a continue to benefit from mm -hmm. the status quo, mm -hmm. uh, but also it's a creating the lack of urgency, mm -hmm. lack of urgency to look for a better and a brighter future, mm -hmm. even though knowing that the current situation mm. is almost basically impossible to maintain mm. because they. They will, they will not have perpetual uh, control mm -hmm. over the population. Mm. That is, the population specifically and among the Palestinians mm. is one that it is extremely frustrated, mm. extremely angry. Mm -hmm. Job opportunities don't exist there. A graduate student, graduate, graduate student have no, no place to go. Mm -hmm. And so from what you've been seeing there, do they ever think in terms of what will be... They have, they have basically victimized... Uh, four generations already mm -hmm. of young of Palestinians. To some extent, in a different form, the Israelis done the same thing. Mm -hmm. Does it ever occur to them that this is something that cannot continue indefinitely and what is going to have to take to change it? Well, I think that's where the narrative comes in because, uh, and, and the narrative, again, blocks the solution. I think there are two things happening on, on both sides, the leadership on both sides. We will manage this conflict for all the reasons that you just described, including the advantages it gives us politically and, and economically. And one day it will end, but it has to end in, in accordance with our narrative. So one day for the Palestinians it will end and you know we will have a, Jerusalem as our capital. And a, provided, yeah, but provided that the conditions are such yeah. that eventually one day they can realize their objective. Yeah. When in fact one party like Israel is yeah. creating conditions mm. on the ground, mm. they may not be reversible. Yeah. So, so the narrative, if you ask, I think, a Palestinian, an average Palestinian, an average Israeli, there is no such thing. But if you ask them, can this go on? They'll say, well, it can go on, but then it, we will solve it. But we will solve it in our way. And the problem is that for each of them, their way is so, so contradictory, it can't be But done. not only that, you are absolutely right, that also makes it ever more intractable. Yes, indeed. Is, the more you dig deeper you dig into mm. what you really want to eventually achieve, mm. the less are becoming the opportunity to mitigate that. Yeah. So I, th I think, if to, to speak a little bit idealistically, and as I said before, if there's going to be talk about negotiations or a solution, uh, it has to be nested in a process that takes account of what's happening psychologically. What's happening socially too, where things like civil society uh, is highly geared again towards the politics? Uh, I have an interest in professional ethics, and I went with met, met with several of the professional health ethics, and met with the various health associations in in, in Palestine, um, and they were just uh, branches of Fatah. You know, 
and and they had a they were unions you know they were they were trade uh-huh. unions they they weren't their concept of a professional code of ethics was was and that's a product of Arafat's way of doing things it's a product of the conflict that you know something as simple as as a a medical association is either Fatah or Hamas it's it's uh, to me tragic but uh, so so in terms of civil society. And then in terms of the economy and in terms of the politics. And you're going to ask me, so what do you actually do to change the economy and make it move from a a conflict economy to a peace economy? And what do you do about the politics to move it from a conflict? Well, you're going to have to start with, in a way, start with the politics. Well, no. If not simultaneously. I think simultaneously, because I think these things are not four separate tracks. They're four interconnected themes. You know, you can't change the politics when your average citizen, uh, I know that's a false premise, but your average citizen still has this zero-sum game, hatred uh, of the other, uh, and, and the moral exclusion that comes with that. You can't move the politics till the people move, and you can't move the people till the politics move. So, and and equally the the uh, civil society and the and the economy. So, I think they need to be seen as four elements of an integrated whole. But the extent to which there must be collaboration between the yeah. two sides, yeah, as it is, is not confined within the Israeli society and within the Palestinian society. Yeah, that is, if we want to change the dynamic, we're going to have this. Exchange of, of relationship, yeah. and yeah. that's I'm I'm even calling it in a people to people where the yeah. civil society and both sides are actually engaged yeah. in the same part of the political economic process yeah. that ought to be taking place. And and interestingly, I think it's really important that women are involved in that yeah. because in the past, and you speak to Palestinians or Israelis, some Israelis, they'll say, I, you know, Palestinians say, I used to work for Shlomo at his whatever, or I had a business and I dealt with this Israeli guy. Uh, you know, you go to a, a village in the West Bank and the men still speak Hebrew, but the women don't because yes. the, the women didn't go and work. And, right, right. and they'll say things. I mean, I know a guy in Gaza who during the, the conflict uh, not the last one, but the one before, uh, got a call from his previous Israeli business, he had a, a business associate, who said, where are you? And this guy said, I'm in Gaza. And the guy said, no, where are you? And he described the part of Gaza he was in. And the guy said, well, don't go to Tel Al-Hawa in the next, right, in the next right. hour. So, And there was a strike on, on that area. So you get this... Um, you know, these relationships still exist in a very tenuous fashion, but they're man to man, and that's missing out on half, and a very important half of society. Um, but yes, I think, um, you know, the individual contacts are really important. And you speak to a 30-year-old Israeli or Palestinian now, anyone under the age of 30, the only place they might chance to meet is an Israeli soldier meets a Palestinian soldier. That's, that's, that's really the problem. Yeah. I mean, that's Whereas the, the older generation of men yeah. will tell you that they used to go to... Yeah, they used the, to the, the, wonder, I mean, in the 80s, in the 80s mm. what did you, if you went to Palestine and Israel at the time, yeah. Jerusalem and elsewhere, you think, well, this is, yeah. this is how it should be. They're mm. working together, they talk to one another. Fam- family rituals like weddings and so on. Ritual, mm. They travel from east to west, or mm. east, you know. Mm. I mean, that's what's taking place. You know, initially we started with talking about 
we agree, I think, uh, that there is that psychological hang-up. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and we also agree that that has to be somewhat mitigated. Mm-hmm. Now, what are, from your perspective, you know, being there, what are the steps? What would we do? I mean, we have, I have a long list of the things that need to be done. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. from the ground, you know, you've been there mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. present than I have mm-hmm. on a day-to-day basis. How do you begin to mitigate that, given the reality today on the ground, yeah. uh, given the fact that you cannot change that mm-hmm. unless you get change the images, how mm-hmm. the Israeli view a Palestinian mm-hmm. under the age of 30 in particular, mm-hmm. and how a Palestinian view an Israeli under that mm-hmm. age, and what is going to take to change their views mm-hmm. about one another mm-hmm. in order to be able to say, well, my future is linked with the presence of my current enemy, mm-hmm. and I need to change my ideas about my current enemy and see if I can eventually mm-hmm. n- neutralize the enmity, and perhaps getting to a point where we could we could even become friends and good neighbors. Mm-hmm. That is a process. Yeah, I, and I think you start the conversation actually with my grandchildren. My grandchildren are going to, if they're going to live here, are going to have to find a way to live with right. these other people. Because uh, I think it's asking perhaps too much to say, what about, what can you do? <clears throat> for yourself, but maybe you can do something for your grandchildren. Um, I don't think, because because of this integrated whole, I don't think the change is going to come entirely from within. You know, there are people on both sides who, who want to genuinely and sincerely hope for peace, but there are many others who either are totally sceptical and others who don't want it. Um, they have too much invested in, in uh, the conflict. So the 45% or whatever the, the percentage may be. So I don't think it can come entirely from within. I think it's already too enmeshed and cannot come entirely from within. I think the, the conversation, and because of the sense of entitlement that both sides have, they don't want to hear someone from the outside saying, you need to do this or you need to do that because I don't need to listen to you. I mean, the classic example was was the Palestinian leadership in Ramallah uh, when the um, Egyptian foreign minister visited Ramallah and then visited Israel and uh, basically was asking for some kind of message to take from Ramallah to the prime minister's office. Uh, I'm not sure if they met in Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, but um, to take to Netanyahu. And and, and the Palestinian answer was, it's all or nothing. So when you treat your one of your most important patrons, the government of Egypt, with disdain, because you're entitled to all, not nothing, it's very hard for someone from the outside to actually say, let's move the edges, let's let's shift it a little bit. So both sides are resistant to outside messages because of that sense of entitlement. But I think that's where it has to begin. That's, that's and it. sometimes with international institutions like the World Trade Organization, mm-hmm. uh, like, uh, and, and, you know, there are many international institutions that, that uh, touch on the economy and politics, like the International Postal Union, the... the uh, ITU, which deals with international telecommunications. The, there's a whole raft of these organizations that dance around the conflict and don't really grab it. But are they, are they going to be able to take uh, the initiative on their own without some kind of a larger framework? 
Mm-hmm. What I've been what I've been advancing is mm-hmm. very recently came back from Brussels is that I feel exactly what you're saying that mm-hmm. the the change cannot come entirely from within. No. Maybe this is a bit too late for that at mm-hmm. this point. Mm-hmm. You have to have an, an inter- some outsider mm-hmm. to interject mm-hmm. themselves into that. Not by telling you have to give this and you have to give that because mm-hmm. all of nothing still mm-hmm. stuck in their head, mm-hmm. but to create that kind of process, mm-hmm. help them to create the process mm-hmm. to have both civil societies on both sides begin to see one another in a different light mm-hmm. and arrange the long range of issues that they can do. Mm-hmm. So, do, do you feel, do you agree that that kind of intervention in mm-hmm. court, mm-hmm. where to promote the people to people? by an out, outside party who has very strong interest mm-hmm. in, in, in ending this, mm-hmm. in ending the conflict, mm-hmm. would be necessary? I think so, absolutely. And, and, and I don't think it would be an outside party. I think it would be uh, an outside uh, coalition. Coalition, of, like of, the EU. I'm, I'm thinking of the EU. Well, I, I was thinking more like, you know, you've got the Arab League, you've got the, the Arab Quartet, as they refer to it now. You've got, certainly the EU has some very strong interests, but basically a, a coalition of like-minded entities, EU plus some states plus, say, the Arab League, saying, we want to fix this thing. And, and the problem is, is, you know, 10 years ago, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict was the, was the main act in town, if you looked at the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Now it's a sideshow. And it's a sideshow. Is it in the back burner because yeah. there are the more urgent... And, and well, I, I think it's on the back burner for two reasons. One is, as you say, it's the you know there are some much bigger shows, tragic shows in town, but the other is that the intransigence of both sides has made them actually irrelevant. You know, there's a, there's a conflict fatigue in Cairo and Riyadh and elsewhere, where you know the, the, the recent Turkish uh, reconciliation with Israel was very interesting because they they had a a fig leaf of Turkish humanitarian goods going to Gaza. Yeah, yeah. But it was yeah. a, yeah. you know, it, it, the, the Turks threw away Gaza, gone, uh, because it's just become, it's become irrelevant because the scale of everything else is so bigger, so much bigger. Well, of course, yeah. But also the intransigence of the leadership in Ramallah and Gaza and, and in uh, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, is um, making them, you know, when John Kerry goes to Ramallah and goes to uh, you know, meet with Netanyahu or, or Lieberman and gets nothing, then they become irrelevant. You know, they're, they're, they're making themselves irrelevant. And I think that's more the Palestinian than the Israeli leadership, but they're both making themselves and their conflict less and less relevant. Yeah, um, yeah. So it, it's, yeah, it's both what's happened around, but also what's happened within. So, the, you know, the approach I've been uh, trying advancing in recent, mm. recent months, recent couple, last couple of years, we talk about this civil society, the interaction between mm-hmm. the two sides mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, what the two authorities, that is government and the Palestinian Authority, can do, mm-hmm. and again, I'm not talking about significant concessions, but mm-hmm. say releasing some prisoner to show some goodwill, mm-hmm. uh, easing uh, the issuance of permits to build, mm. for example, mm. or making it easier for the Palestinians to travel from area B, area mm. A to B, to C, C, C or, mm. or whatever. And the Palestinians can also reciprocate by making sure, enhancing the security cooperation between the two mm. sides, mm. uh, 
working close, uh, closely with Israel in terms of intelligence gathering to prevent terrorism, mm-hmm. all of that. That is sort of the second layer, mm-hmm. whereby they, if they proclaim, that's actually, I'm, I'm suggesting what I've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. If they claim they want two-state solution, what should stop them from taking this type of small steps? I, I want your mm-hmm. answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the third layer, and it's, it's throughout this, there's got to be a framework, a political mm-hmm. framework. Mm-hmm. And I agree 100%, it's the Arab Peace Initiative. I no longer believe in the quartet. Mm-hmm. Personally, mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think the Arab Initiative remain extremely relevant. Mm-hmm. The Arab states, Saudi Arabia, it's like it's still on the table. Mm-hmm. Okay, these are the three tires mm-hmm. that ought to be working simultaneously for a mm-hmm. period of time, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I say, a couple of years. Mm-hmm. With that, if they were to assume that, if they would mm. agree to that, mm. A, would that change the dynamic? Mm. And if they don't agree, what's it going to take to persuade them mm. that this is what's going to have to happen in order to change the dynamics and move forward towards mm. peace? Mm. I would ask a different question. Uh, I don't think the outcome, if you, if you say the outcome is a two-state solution, and I'm a Palestinian, and many Palestinians say this, they no longer believe that the two-state solution is the answer. Um, I think the question is, to a Palestinian, uh, what's going to result in your rights being met? Um, and I'm not the first person to, to address it like that. And I learned a lot from a Palestinian colleague I spoke to recently. Um, you know, if I'm a Palestinian, what's the best solution for my rights to be met, including my right to security and safety and economic development and political association and so on? And I have to say that if I was a Palestinian looking at the present leadership in Gaza and Ramallah, I'm not sure that the two-state solution is going to result in me having many freedoms. Uh, I don't think it's going to result in me, actually, if you look at how they're operating now, I'm not going to have many rights. Um, So I I think that's the question. What's the best way for an Israeli and a Palestinian to see a way forward in which their rights to security and safety and and, uh, economic development and well-being can be met for them and for their, their grandchildren? But I think uh, a mechanism such as the one you describe with those three tiers, but actively engaging. You know, the, I mentioned before the International Postal Union. I mean, Israel interfered. Not only does it interfere with the delivery of mail, which doesn't matter very much in this modern age, but still matters. They collect the money, what's called a terminal fee, which is supposed to go to the post office, which distributes the letters. They collect it, $5 million a year. Well, they do some of the guys of security to make sure. No, that no, it's not. I know, I know, I, you're I, right. They, they can, they, 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 the constraint on the transfer, they say, is to do with security. They're just keeping $5 million. Right. I mean, you know, it, 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 it's something that really annoys me because it's so flagrant. But, you know, all of these, there's an entity like a, a coalition, which includes the Arab League and EU and others, um, those who have a stake in the game, uh, that build a, a network around the protagonists that say, we want you to conform to WTO rules. We want you to conform to the International Telecommunications Union rules about um, cell phone towers and whatever, um, so that that um, you both have signed um, various human rights agreements. Let's see you put those into action in this way. So that it actually becomes... Not, not a force that drives, but a uh, just a set of conditions that are expected. Yeah, and then you yeah. can get a, politi- a political process built around a change of political structure, economics, and um, 
and the civil society connections with people. But it's going to be if you if you ask me to put money on whether that's going to work or not, I wouldn't be betting my whole salary. I wouldn't be betting too much. Uh, okay, but you'll bet some. Yeah, and and the reason that it's I think I think what's happening and and what's so uh, you know if I was an Israeli who if I was an Israeli I probably wouldn't think this way but you know Israel is you know marching to its doom as a Jewish state it's it's ten fifteen twenty years of the same thing Israel thirty years fifty years I don't know how long it's going to take but that's where Israel's heading to and I think heading to what. Toward well, I mean, I'm not the first person. Olmert, Olmert, the the former prime minister, said, yeah. you know, we either make peace now. Back in 2008, we either make peace now, or it's an apartheid state, uh, or it's not a Jewish state. You know, those are your choices. And, exactly. Um, I agree. And uh, and I think equally, the Palestinian leadership and its intransigence is is not leading its people toward any fair and just solution. Of, of the um, Palestinian situation. Yeah, you know, we we, we talked. You you mentioned well, well, yeah, about the you know the Palestinians have no faith in their leadership, mm. and many Israelis don't have faith in their government also. Mm. Albeit, presumably, it's not the majority representative government, mm. but you know the political structure in Israel, which is very convoluted to begin with. Mm. But the plight of the Palestinians in terms of their leadership is not. Limited to the Palestinians, that is the mm. whole Arab world mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. have a crisis of leadership, mm. and it's been going on for so long now. Mm. What is the prospect? You see, I personally, let's say Abbas is removed, is removed or resigned mm. Mm. by natural causes. Who is going to replace him? <laughs> what kind of Palestinian authority are you going to have? Yeah. What sort of relationship are you going to have with Hamas? Yeah. You know? Uh, who is going to replace Khalid Mashad or Ismail uh, yeah, yeah, Haniyeh? Yeah. So you have not just now we have a crisis of leadership yeah. among the Palestinians and among the Israelis, I believe. Yes. The prospect of better, more enlightened, more practical, more visionary leadership yeah. is not on the horizon. I, and I think what's, you know, if you look at the oil-rich states, you get exactly the same process happening. It's a rentier economy. There is no engagement by the leadership in a political pro- in a real political process. And I think while you have that, uh, the Palestinian economy is is pumping the the uh, the occupation in order to have its income. Why would they bother to engage in an ordinary political process? You know, you engage in an ordinary political process where you have a dynamic. A civil society and an economy which depends on a properly functioning private sector. Um, you know, the private sector in Palestine could disappear tomorrow. Uh, the the larger uh, companies, of which yeah. there are very few, yeah. uh, and apart from the banks, uh, you know, not much would happen. Eighty um, percent of the economy is small and medium-sized enterprises, family-owned businesses. You know, you, you deal take the and, big and guys out. And the authority out. is the largest employer. Yeah, and yeah. You, you take away the the private sector, and it carries on just the same. So there's no, and I think this is true across the. I think there are two things across the the Arab world, and one is, without sort of entering entering into kind of an essentialist argument about you know. Arabic culture, there is a, a you know a history of the sheikh or the pharaoh yeah, or whatever yeah, as yeah, a strong leader, yeah. um, and then you have the the rentier economies, which means that the leadership now don't need to engage with the people, 
Um, and so the, the quality of the leadership is, is irrelevant. You know, as, as a leader, the, the quality becomes irrelevant because they pump the oil or benefit from the occupation. Um, and uh, nothing changes. So I think for Palestine... Well, for the Palestinian in particular, there is no oil. Yeah. They well, no, they, they, don't, they don't need oil. They need to perpetuate the, the yeah. occupation. They perpetuate the occupation, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, um, you know, Jordan is an interesting example of, a, of an Arab state which has a patriarchal leader but doesn't have uh, natural resources and is far more of many people would argue it's not adequate, but there's far more of a, a political process and an interaction with the leadership in, in Jordan uh, than there is in Palestine. Oh, no, um, no question. No and, question. and so I think the solution to that leadership question, part of the solution to that leadership question comes from uh, the economic change. And, and it's going... But, but it's lead, the leadership itself ought to... Uh, you know, initiate and and you see um, this, the economic the, this elements of the beginning of that in Saudi, for example. But but about the Palestinians themselves, yeah, shouldn't they initiate that change, uh, economic change? But they are not doing it. Well, they should, but as we talked about before, for political, economic, and other yeah, reasons, yeah, yeah, there's too much at stake for the leadership to. Uh, so to where do we go from here? I mean, you know, uh, you spent so many years. <laughs> I spent so many years. And we come up with ideas and theories yeah, yeah, and we try yeah. to dissect yeah. the psychology, the economy, the social system, <laughs> and see what role each of these yeah. elements is playing to move the process forward. And eventually, I, I find myself also coming to almost a dead end in the end. Well, I think... I think what, what is going to be neat today? If I want to change that, the dynamics, yeah. What is, what is it that I'm going to have to do? Okay. What, what I, would you tell our, uh, Mahmoud Abbas tomorrow? Uh, oh, well, it's very easy. Uh, what, what a, arrange a proper him? succession and resign. Um, but if I were talking to uh, a, a, um, uh, if I were to, I, I think the leadership that's critical to get the process moving is actually external leadership. It's not going to come from within. And I think, again, the, the drivers we've talked about um, mean that in both Israel and Palestine, in both parts of Palestine, the leadership is, is geared toward this conflict. They're not, they're not the kind of leaders you need for peace. But, but this so, external force, external yeah. entity or state mm. that ought to, and I agree, mm. I agree that, that's going to take that mm. element, the third element to intervene. Mm. Mm. So, Mere inter political uh, intervention mm. hasn't really worked. No, hasn't really worked. So you're going to need you're going to need um, an element of coercion. Yeah, I think a pressure, if yeah. not that, at least yeah. significant political pressure, and the threat of potentially worse consequences. Yeah, don't you think that those elements ought to be hovering? So the people, the Israelis both and the Palestinians understand mm. that their quarrel, their conflict is impacting the interests of other parties yeah. in Europe, in America, in the Middle East, and that these other elements are paying the price, or at least part of that price, mm. and they ought to be changing. That is, to how do you justify otherwise interference? I guess the hard thing for an external leader would be how do I justify putting energy and political capital and financial capital into fixing the Arab-Israeli conflict when there's Syria and Iraq right next door? Um, right now, it would be hard for even a very charismatic 
Western leader or a very charismatic leader within the Arab states to say, I'm going to put a huge amount of energy into this because it's just getting less and less relevant. Probably, to, I'm sure, to the detriment of both Israel and the Palestinian alliance. Oh, and, and, the, and the region, too. And the region, yeah. But, but yeah. it's... Um, <laughs> Um, so, but so, I th- but I think they, you know, there has to, you know, this is where we get away from logic and into hope. Uh, is the hope that there will be a leader? It won't be within the UN, and that's not a criticism of the UN. But the UN structure no, is not I geared not is that. not geared appropriately. No. Um, but who that leader is, uh, I have no idea. Um, and that is the problem. I wish I could. Uh, finish this conversation on a much more positive note. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you and I, for some reason, remain hopeful. Uh, I, I, Are you less hopeful? I'm less hopeful than you. That's why I left. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, uh, there's, uh, in, in my more angry times, I, I like to think, well, you know, let them stew in their own juice, basically. Um, but I know too many people on both sides for whom it's... Uh, for me to do that completely yeah. because it's a it's a bit when you know many people it's a personal thing for whatever reason i still believe in the human instinct mm. to seek peace and tranquility and comfort and love and i'm not prepared as yet to give up that uh, okay. notion that belief yeah. that we have that instinct yeah and perhaps that instinct will someday someday prevail i don't know it's about competing instincts, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, The tribal instinct versus right. the peace instinct. All right. Well, thank you. This was yeah. a wonderful conversation with you. I very I'm much enjoyed it. I have a tremendous amount of knowledge and mm. you shed a very important light on very sensitive, critical issues. Mm. So, Greg, I will yeah. need to continue this discussion. Okay, time. I'd be very happy to um, uh, at another time and, and uh, no doubt... In a month or two months or three months, the whole situation will have evolved. (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) We can have another conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time. It's wonderful. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Issues. You can find this podcast on my SoundCloud page and stay tuned to my social media accounts for the latest analysis and announcements.